really. Okay. Shut it, Shut it down. Great. That's that's how I'm gonna start this episode. <laughs> Shut it down. I'm gonna start it with you just yelling, "Turn it down!" <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's like, I'm gonna play music while I'm in the shower, but if it's too loud, let me know. But you'll probably have to yell it at me. <laughs> okay. Cool, cool, cool. Um, hi. 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 Reagan, welcome to Babe Town. You son of a bitch. Yup. Yup. We're back from our break. Wow, I was off my game. I'm really disappointed in myself. I was ready. I was prepared. I planned it all day. Do you notice that my shirt is inside out? That's the day I'm having. (laughs) I did notice I am very sorry about your head today. It's fine. That's not the best. It's fine. It, I mean, no, it sucks, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah. We um, are packing because it's our anniversary on Tuesday. And so we are going to Tangle Lakes. And we're nice. going to camp in the middle of nowhere where there's no service and no nice. reception. And we can't read the news. And, like, perfect. can't see any of it. Um, and we're going to drink some fancy champagne that my parents got us for our wedding. Ooh. And we're going to eat Icelandic candy that we saved. And it's going to be a dank time. That sounds really incredible. It's oh going to be God. so good. It's you plan so this good. out flawlessly. Yeah, we leave tomorrow morning, and then we're getting back, we think, Monday night, but maybe sometime Tuesday. Yeah. Just let it happen. You it's going to be so good. Yep. Wow, we're going to tag team because I leave Tuesday to go on an eight-hour drive to go see my family. That sounds um, like a great time. At your fancy lake house? <laughs> yes, at my fancy lake house. <laughs> I love that I own about it. your fancy lake house. Yeah, I'm obsessed mine with and I own it. every part of it. I, I love that your family, like extended family, all chipped in to build said fancy lake house yeah. and that it's in well because when your family is like 30 people renting out like hotel rooms that's too much it's so expensive that they were like hey what if we take a couple years off save all that money and then just make our own home and they were all like no that's that's a smart plan that's so smart it's so it reminds me of like like prairie families (laughs) like everybody takes care of each other's kids Mm -hmm. you know it's just you take turns feeding each other it's a whole it's very amazing i I didn't minded i didn't know that that was a thing (laughs) i just like i didn't know that assumed everybody was part of one nope i refer to them as my aunts and uncles but then people are like, oh, who's sibling or whatever? And I'm like, okay, well, we're not actually related. Just once upon a time. <laughs> it's just easier. Yeah. But I'm still determined to do like a ladies weekend a week at the lake house and get all my ladies. Mm-hmm. And then we venture out into Branson only to get supplies. And then we hide from Branson the rest of the time. What is Branson like? Um, terrible. It's <laughs> it's so very aggressive in its 
family friendliness. Oh, that's no good. It's in your face that it is appropriate for the whole family. And there are billboards on billboards on billboards that either have the word Jubilee or Jamboree involved. That sounds real bad. That sounds like a place that would be like on the Truman Show. But there's also a Titanic museum. Oh, okay. Which who? What family members are like, yeah, my relatives' things can go in the Titanic Museum in Branson. Wouldn't you want it to be in, like, New York? You would think. I would assume New York has a Titanic Museum. I don't know. They probably do. Um, Trevor did a lot of research before he went there so that he knew exactly which things he wanted to do. In Branson? In Branson. And he was like, did you know? that on the Titanic museum tour, you get a number or a name. I don't remember which one, but like you get assigned something when you start the tour. And at the end, you find out if you lived or died. What? Yeah. (laughs) That's horrific. That's so bleak. It's so bleak. Wow. Yeah. But it's right across the street from an ice cream place. So fun for the whole family. Wow. (laughs) I'm fascinated by Branson now. We all are, to an extent. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Not to change the subject, but because he just walked in front of me. Did I tell you that Gregory has glaucoma? (laughs) I saw that somewhere. My dumb cat has glaucoma. We took him into the vet because his pupil wasn't moving around. It was just like one pupil was just huge. Oh, yikes. so we took him into the vet. Like, is this mad eye moody the cat? <laughs> so like so like is my cat dying? Because cat WebMD says that he is dying like yesterday. Cat WebMD. So, apparently is a thing. Um so we took him into the vet and she was like she was like, Yeah, you know, I don't think it's an emergency, but it's definitely worth getting checked out and she was like I'm surprised that you even noticed this. She was like, if it was my cat, I wouldn't even notice. And I was like, I, I think that you're really underestimating the amount of time that we stare at this cat. Like we, we spend most of our day looking at or talking to or talking about that cat. So it'd be pretty bad if we didn't notice. And we That'd took him weird. in Very weird. to the only feline ophthalmologist in Alaska. And um, this guy, you know, you know, on Parks and Rec, when Anne and Chris are pregnant and they're mm-hmm. at Henry Winkler's place and they're like, we know that you're ruining our friends' lives, but we love you. Yeah. <laughs> we were joking that that's how we felt about this ophthalmologist. He's just this like super old dude. He, because it's COVID and everything sucks, we like had to just give him Greg and then he called us. And so we were in the car and we had him on speaker. And he's like, yeah, you know, I just squirted some stuff in your cat's eye, and now he's now he's drooling, and I don't know why he's drooling. I don't think it's he's like, I don't think this is bitter. I don't know. I've never really had a cat drool before. He's like, oh, I don't think it's bitter. And then he pauses, and he's like, nope, it's not bitter. I just put some on my on my tongue, and it's not bitter at all. You can't taste it at all. <laughs> we were like, thank you for testing his eye drops. <laughs> Did anyone ask you to do that? And then he like came out and introduced himself because he just wanted to meet Greg's owners. <laughs> the, the people who have the cat with no moving people? 
Yeah, but he immediately was like, oh yeah, it's glaucoma. So now, anyway, Greg uh, is a scooch blind, and he has scooch. He has eye drops three. He has three drop eye drops twice a day now. Like maybe wow. forever. He's thrilled. I bet. Um, Can you imagine like speed dating as a feline optometrist? Oh man, I I would love to get really drunk with that guy. Or like any sort of like networking event. You know, everybody's got their fancy little cocktails. Just like, so what do you do? Well, <laughs> well, let me tell I am you. the only. I am the one and only. Um, yeah, I guess he travels to Alaska because he just likes it. So he is based out of Texas, but then teaches at the University of Idaho or Illinois or some one of those, one of those Midwest I states. Yeah, and and then travels up to Alaska. Huh. So. You know, that. if that's what brings you joy, then then you, Get you after it. do it. It was a real, I mean, it worked out for us that there was such a thing as a feline optometrist. So. Hmm. Weird. Yep. In case you're looking for a career change. From acting. That could be, that could be next. <laughs> Just saying, don't rule it out. Is that water you have there? It is water I have here. I also have a Diet Coke. Mm. If I'm feeling spicy. Um, I saw you drinking something that looked delicious. What is that? It's a... Get out of there. Get out of there. Ah. Did your dog just stick your tongue in it? I know. I just got a gnat in my tequila. And it's... It's fine. It's trying to get out. It's, it's fine. It's sterilized. Um, yeah, I have a, uh, a, it's the Pilsner from Trevor's Brewery, but they did a version with salt and lime. So it's like a Mexican lager. Yeah. Um, they call it Salty Boy. And then a little bit of tequila with a gnat in it that I'm going to try and get out somehow. Beer and tequila. Well, like a, like a lager. A, a Mexican lager and tequila. That's no, still beer. Yeah. I don't think yeah. I've ever had. That's like a. That's like a. Um. What do you call it with orange juice? A mimosa. A brass monkey. It's like a brass monkey with tequila. Instead. But of I orange. didn't. I didn't mix them. They're separate. It's like a beer and a shot. I see. This makes. There is a so beer. There is a beer here in Chicago that I do mix with tequila. It is called Beer for Tacos. And if you put a little bit of tequila in the bottom of the glass and then pour that beer on top of it, it is the best margarita in the world. I wow. love it. I love it. I've never even thought to do that. But, I mean, I I, I don't hate the idea. I'm pretty, I'm pretty behind it, actually. It's so good. I'll see if I can introduce you to it at some point. That would be great. I have a question for you. Oh, yes. What is your question for me? <laughs> what year was your babe born? Well, I went a little outside Reagan's regular old comfort zone. Are you back yeah. when? Yeah, you're way back when. No, I almost did. I was between two babes. 
one of them was 14th century. <laughs> and I chose the other. Uh, 1945. My baby was born in 1945. Wow, I am going first. Uh, suck on not, that. Not by a ton. <laughs> because I like stayed, 1944. I stayed pretty in my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, okay. Reagan James. Taylor Campbell. Have you ever heard of Rita Levi Montalcini? I really have not, but I'm excited to hear about her. Great. Okay, so first of all, the name Rita is one of my top five favorite names. Mm. Oh, I in my notes next to this person's name, I have quite possibly one of the dopest names of all time. So <laughs> glad we're on the same page. <laughs> Great. Um, so... By the way, I couldn't pick a babe when I was trying to pick one, and I was kind of going between a few different ones, and I was like, I don't know if I want to do them this week or not. And so finally I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to open that book that Ronnie got me to a random page, and that's what happened, and she's amazing. So that's how I picked her. Um, Okay, so she was born April 22nd, 1909. Mm, Okay. Okay. Um, In Turin, Italy. Okay. Her family... Um, was a well-to-do Jewish family that she had described as being, quote, a typical Victorian style of life, all decisions being taken by the head of the family, the husband and father. Boo. So that's where we're starting. Boo. Um, so, by the way, all of these, like, quotes from her, she, spoiler alert, won the Nobel Prize. And when you win it, I guess, you get to like write a little blurb about your life. So they're all just from like her writing about her life. Okay. Which is great. Um, So her dad didn't want any of his three daughters to pursue a career. So Rita has a twin sister who is a famous Italian painter (laughs) and then her older sister, Anna. And he didn't want any of those three daughters to pursue a career because it could interfere with being a wife and mother. Oh, yes naturally the truest callings you know follow your father's orders and don't have dreams so shockingly that is not to say that that if your dream is to be a wife and mother that that is a bad thing that is not that is not a dream um shockingly rita is like super not about it Mm. probably because her name is rita so When she's young, her governess, who she was like a big fan of, died of cancer. And that's what made her want to become a doctor. She originally wanted to become a philosopher. And then her governess dies. And she's like, "Mm, nope, I want to figure out how to make that not a thing anymore. Amazing. So um, there were a couple of problems with that. Her dad, obviously, not about it. Um, And she had attended an all-girls high school where it was described in many places that the main goal after graduation was marriage. So it sounds like it was like a pretty shit education because that's not what you were really meant to be there for. Um, It was like a lot of finishing classes and things, which like barf. It's Um, so frustrating. (laughs) So she had to like, like ask her dad's permission to like go do this shit because he like was the head of the household and that's where she lives. And that's so anyway, she talked him into it. And so he grudgingly gave her permission to go off to university. Um, She wrote, in eight months, I filled my gaps in Latin, Greek, and mathematics, graduated from high school, and entered medical school in Turin. Eight months. What? What? (laughs) She's just like, oh, yeah, let me just real quick tick all these boxes, 
and then I'll go be a doctor. So while she's in Turin, she begins studying under a guy named Giuseppe Levi. Um, she was interning at the Institute of Anatomy in Rome. So he uh, is a his histonomer, I think is how you say it. But like a historical um, astronomer? Is no, but real close. Study what the stars look like a hundred years ago? Like cellular biology. More along How does that have anything to do with his, the history of stars? I couldn't tell you. Oh, I wish, you. though, that that's where the story went. I feel like I've been gone, but that's fine. So he's, like, described in lots of places as being eccentric, and I couldn't really figure out what that meant. Like, yes. there's... There's some story that she told about um, an experiment that he set her on to figure out the like the like inner workings of how the human brain works, like all the neurons and everything in there. And she was like, how the shit is anyone supposed to do that? <laughs> so like it was just like a lot a lot of things like that. So she um, eventually comes up with this idea to start developing the study, start studying the development of the nervous system. Um, and she starts using, uh, like, chicken egg embryos for her experiments. And she's like, hey, what about this? And he's like, yeah, okay. So he, like, gets behind her and helping her with those experiments. I still don't even know where you would start, like, an egg and nerves. Yeah, no. How do, I don't understand how that would even... Woo. Well, I couldn't tell you. Um so a few years into this new project, World War II mm. rears up like it always does every time we have time. one of these stories. But this time it comes from a different angle because she's in Italy. So 1925, Mussolini declare, declares his dictatorship, right? So because of this, uh, obviously, anti-Semitism is on the rise. Being Jewish, not a great time for <sighs> sweet Rita. So despite having graduated summa cum laude in 1936, she doesn't really have any job prospects because she is Jewish. Um, and in 1939, she withdraws from the university research project out of fear for her non-Jewish colleagues because she's worried that they're going to get in trouble or arrested for hiring her and promoting her work. So she is um, offered a chance to continue her research at a neurological facility in Belgium but she returns to Turin shortly after because she was worried about her family's safety. So she comes back to be with them. Um, it was like a couple of months before Hitler and Mussolini were like, hey, let's be pals and ruin the world. So, uh. Um, uh, so she keeps, she sets up a lab in her room at her house so that she can keep doing her research and like not, need anybody and she was very very proud of the fact she said that it was her greatest pride that Giuseppe Levi her eccentric intern professor became her first and only assistant that she ever had at her oh, like secret room I lab. love that isn't that great um so she keeps doing her research sets up a lab already said that when bombs would fall in town she would just pick up all her shit and move it to the basement and keep going and then move it back up and then move it back down because world war ii was a hellscape <laughs> wow all of these stories i'm just like what the fuck 
how is that possible that that is a thing that people lived through and then like just moved past it's it's crazy because it's at the top I don't know how to say this like going through it it has to be so surreal but like you're you adapt uh, yeah you know what just... I mean you have to keep going because you have no idea you can't just be like well when this is over right. who knows you know so you just have to keep doing what you're doing like I don't know a pandemic it's so a pandemic is not the same as bombs being dropped that's absolutely different no but I mean it's a similar but like the, you just like, there is no end in sight, so that's we, yeah, yeah we don't know what the end is or when the end is or if there's an end or whatever so you just have to keep going yeah the resilience of people in world wars is unbelievable wild Wild. Wild. Um, so in 1942, Rita and her family moved to the surrounding hills um, just outside of Florence to basically hide and ride out the war. Um, so they moved out to the country. She convinced farmers that she needed eggs for her children. She didn't have children. She was just her, still doing her research and didn't her research babies. So she's like like tricking farmers into giving her eggs so that she can keep doing research out in the fucking countryside. Um, so she, a really, really, really boiled down sure. version of what she was studying. So she was building off of the theory of a neurobiologist in the U S named Victor Hamburger, which stellar name. Amazing. Um, he thought that the so I took this phrase from one of my main articles. So he thought that the quote specialization of nerve cells depends in large part on their destination. So he would take like these little chick embryos, same thing that she was doing, and basically cut off one of the limbs and see if the nerves on the like not removed part would grow the same if they no longer were being told your touch yeah. sensation nerves that are going to the arm or whatever. Right. And so he thought that it was the destination that caused the specialization of those nerve cells. And she thought that instead it wasn't the limb that was a limiting factor, that there was some sort of, some sort of like protein or something in the actual cell that was dictating what it was and telling it, okay, now you're, you've grown enough. So now you've stopped growing. Hmm. Which is why she was so interested in cancer, because cancer is basically, right. it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Right. So that's the really, 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 really basic, sure, 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 sure. probably full of errors um, explanation of what she won a Nobel yeah. Prize for. So uh, 1944, right? Yeah. So cool. 1944, the Anglo-American forces pushed the Germans out of Florence. Um, she starts working as a nurse at their headquarters, a nurse and a doctor at their headquarters, helping with typhus and other ailments that were common among refugees because of bad living conditions and a war. So she's like immediately helping out. Um, after the war, the war ends in 1945. She's invited by Victor Hamburger to join him at Washington University in St. Louis for a semester where he's like, hey, I think your research is really interesting. 
do you want to collaborate since we're trying to figure out the same thing? And she was like, yeah, totally, but only for one semester. That's really cool, though, that yeah. somebody who was like, I think you're wrong. I think it's this. They were like, wow, that's a really cool idea. Yeah, maybe it is. Let's work together. Oh, man, that's cool. Yeah. So and especially I mean, it's the 40s and she's a lady. Like, yeah. so great. Yeah. Um, so she tells him that she'll join him, but she's like, only for one semester, though. I don't want to be away from my family that long. Um, their research was so successful that she stayed for 30 years. So St. Louis becomes her second home. So she's, she basically splits her time between Rome and St. Louis because they are so successful and such a good research team. Um, so now 1948, she discovers that a variety of mouse tumors, the cells, spurred nerve growth when put into chick embryos. So she's like, okay, so there's something in these cancerous cells that is changing how nerves can grow in chicks. So then she realizes that um, the tumor caused similar cell growth in nerve tissue culture. So she's like, okay. So then her and her lab partner, who's a dude named Stanley Cohen, they were able to isolate the nerve growth factor, which they called NGF. And it's, it basically, it was the first, it was the first like nerve growth discovery protein ever. Um, it plays an important role in the growth of nerve cells and fibers in the nervous system. So they basically figured out that that's how cancer cells would grow is they just basically don't have that protein that says, okay, you've got to stop growing now. So they just now. keep growing. Dang. Um, yeah. So that was her. They figured it out. Dude. Um, in 1956, she's offered an associate professor position at Washington university in St. Louis, 1958. She becomes a full professor, uh, 1962. So this is all she did. She did that research in 48. So this is all now she's mm -hmm. continuously working and building on that. Um, 1962, she establishes the Institute of Cell Biology in Rome, um, which is still a thing. In 1969, she is, um, she's appointed the director of cell biology at the Italian National Council of Research. And she is there until 1978. She retires from Washington University in 1977 and then becomes a guest professor at the cell biology at, at the Italian National Council of Research um, that same year. 1986 is when she finally wins the Nobel Prize for her research surrounding the NGF. Um, she wins it in conjunction with Stanley Cohen. They both win it. Nice. Um, she then is the first woman that's appointed to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences by Pope Paul XI. And instead of, yeah, which is a thing, I guess. Seriously. Also, what a great name. The Pontifical Society. I, mean. I know. Stellar name. Um, apparently, it's customary to kiss the Pope's hand. And she was like, I'm not doing that shit. So she shook his hand. <laughs> and it was a big deal, which is great. Um, there's also, so this, uh, one of my, like, big articles for it is, um, an interview that somebody did with her in the nineties and it's so good. She's just like, she like 
is talking about how, um, you know, when she was growing up, the main goal for women was to go get married. And she stops. It's a lady reporter. She stops and she's like, are you married? And the lady's like, no, I'm not married. She's like, okay, good. Don't. That's stupid. Like, don't (laughs) So good. Um, So anyway, there's like a lot of things in there of her like talking about like she talks about how when she um, got the call that she won the Nobel Prize, um, she was in the middle of reading an Agatha Christie novel and she got the call and she thought it was pretty cool. So she wrote in the book call from Stockholm, the time, and then just kept reading because she wanted to know who did it. I mean, who done it? <laughs> she was just like, yeah, that's great, but I'm A more interested in this book. <laughs> long priority. So good. Um, so in 1993, she was starting some new work with uh, the NGF, the nerve growth factor, Um, looking at how it works in the immune and endocrine systems. She's in her 80s, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, She said, quote, so even now now I'm doing something entirely different, just in the same spirit as when I was a young person, and this is very pleasing to me. I mean, at my old age, I could have no more capacity, and I believe I still have plenty. (laughs) She's like, yeah, cool. I still have a lot of energy, and I'm old as shit. Love it. Um, So Rita died December 30th, 2012. She was 103. Yeah. I couldn't find what she died of, but I'm guessing it was just being she really was, old. She was, she was, she was very old. She was like, I'm ready. You know? She's like, yeah, I'm done with this. Um, and yeah, that's the story Dude. of Rita Levi Montalcini. Dude. Neuroscientist hero wow that's crazy that's so cool yeah i know i was when i was like researching this lady i was like man this book just opened to the perfect (laughs) person this is exactly who i want to be doing (laughs) god that's wow good job that's cool thanks very cool um to source my shit yeah obviously this book that again, shout out, Veronica got me. Women yeah. in Science by Rachel Ignatowski. Um, Britannica.com, Nobelprize.org biography, which was a little bit confusing because they're called biographicals, but it was written all in first person. And so then I started looking into it. Apparently, um, they some of them are written as biographies and some of them are written as autobiographies and hers was an autobiography and they're just called biographicals. Okay. Confusing and weird. Um, there's a great, the main thing that I used was, um, a scientific American article called finding the good and the bad, a profile of Rita Levi Montalcini. And it was written by Marguerite Holloway. And that's the one that has all of those amazing, yes, like sassy, sassy things from this lady which is so good yeah and her twin sister paola is a painter like a really famous italian painter obviously why not why would she be why why not (laughs) wow and yeah that's my babe that's my first back from break kick it off babe back babe that's such a good kick it off babe dang all right well good job settle in 
Will do. Get cozy with your water and Diet Coke if you're feeling spicy. Ooh, feeling spicy. Feeling spicy. Yes. Wait. There it is. So satisfying. Crisp. Ow. <laughs> so impressed. Uh, amazing. Um, okay. Taylor. Have you ever heard of Wilma Mankiller? Yes. Yes. Mm, 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 mm. Great. I love her. Yeah. All right, here we go. So, Wilma Pearl Mankiller, one of the dopest names of all time. Honestly. Yeah, so good. Uh, so she's born November 18th, my brother's birthday, 1945. My mom's birthday. Not my brother and your mom's birthday. No. Right. So she's born in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. She was the sixth of 11 kids. Is that how you say that? Tahlequah? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's great fun, to know. Fun fact about that. Uh, my oldest brother, not the one born November 18th, okay. um, once met a guy named Tahlequah and had seen his name written. He was like, oh, you must be Tahlequah or something like that. And he was like, wow, no one knows how to pronounce my name. And he was like, yeah, man, I grew up in Oklahoma. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there it is. That guy. There it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she's the sixth of sixth of eleven kids. Um, so she's she's right in the middle, you know. Yeah. Her dad was Cherokee, and her mother was Dutch Irish, but I think spoke Cherokee. Um, and she was a direct descendant. I think her great great grandfather marched in the Trail of Tears. Wow. And you know the horrible death march. Right. Um, so her family, like she comes from a line of fighters and survivors. So they're described as living in extreme poverty. So they have a small house, no electricity, no indoor plumbing, no phones. They hunted, fished and had a vegetable garden and they grew peanuts and strawberries that they sold. Um, her mother canned food and made the clothes for the children. Um, but it said that she immersed them in Cherokee heritage. So I think she despite not being Cherokee herself must have been immersed in the culture. Yeah. And knew plenty and knew how important it was. And so right. even though they were in the Baptist church, technically the children were really wary of white congregants and customs, which like yeah. um, makes sense as, as you should be. Um, and they, who was incredible. Ooh. Oh man. Listening. Taylor just managed to mute her microphone a millisecond before a huge sneeze. A huge sneeze. Like wow, Greg. That was impressive. Yeah. Whew. Thank you. I'm glad that you recognize. Trevor says, bless you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was really impressive. Thank you. Anyway. <clears throat> so yeah, the kids preferred to go to tribal ceremonial gatherings rather than Baptist church, which like me too. I get it. Um, and like the family elders taught them all the customs. They were in it. They knew it. They knew all of it. So 1955, there's a really extreme drought in Oklahoma and it just makes their struggles that much worse. Um, so when she, there was a government program that I did not write down what it was called that was offering land grants to Native American peoples in California. And so if they moved there, like it was, 
it was an opportunity. It was a financial opportunity for the family. So when she was 11, they moved to the Bay area and she was not stoked about it, but her parents were like, look, we have 13 mouths to feed and we're really poor and you're 11 years old. So we're going to move to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So they go. And there, once they're in the school system, she and all of her siblings start facing super racist discrimination. And she struggled with math and science anyway, so she just really hated school. And one time ran away to her grandmother's farm. Um, grandmother on her mother's side who lived up there. Okay. Grandmother brought her back, but her parents recognized, like, oh, she's incredibly unhappy maybe we should take steps instead of just like putting her back in school and being like, suck it up and deal with it. Maybe we should take steps to handle this. And so they let her live on that farm for a year. They were like, you know, take a year off school or traditional school, go, you know, live on the farm. And so that year like super built her confidence up. Um, And so she came back, she finished school and went on to attend Skyline college in San Francisco state university then she enrolled in Flaming Rainbow University in Oklahoma, where she got a bachelor's degree in social sciences. And then after that, she took graduate courses at the University of Arkansas. I don't know the years that she did these, but I know that she was working full time and taking night classes. So like that year must have been crazy. So meaningful for her. Yeah. And it's so cool that her parents were like, we recognize they that sound like such good parents, such good parents. Can you imagine, like, most kids today, if you ran away or brought back, they'd be like, you're grounded for a week and go back to school, you know, blah, 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 blah. But they were like, okay, she's clearly unhappy. How can we help her? It's, yeah, I think it's so cool. Um, So in California, Wilma starts social activist work. And she describes it as coming from a family that valued social activism and like constantly talked about social issues in the home. Mm -hmm. Um, So in 1963, when she's 17 years old, she married a guy named Hector Hugo Olaya de Bardi. I forgot what ethnicity he was. doesn't matter. Um, And they would later have two daughters, Felicia and Gina. It was described as a difficult marriage. but basically like he wanted her to be a traditional wife and mother mm. and she was no. She's like, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, but around that time she started working with San Francisco's Indian center, which was like a cultural center with education and outreach. And she absolutely found her calling. This is also around the time of the native American efforts to reclaim Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay. We're going to do a brief side note to talk about the Alcatraz occupation for those who don't know. I have never even heard of that. Wait, what? Are you serious? Yeah. Okay. This is boiled down as much as I could. It's a fascinating story and everybody should go research it. Okay. So the occupation of Alcatraz, it was 19 months. It started in November of 1969 and it went through June of 1971. And it was a protest where American Indians and their supporters occupied Alcatraz Island. It had stopped being a penitentiary in 1963. And according to the Treaty of Fort Laramie between the US and the Lakota tribe, 
all retired, abandoned, or out-of-use federal land was returned to the Indians who once occupied it, because there's proof that they were there 10,000 years before Europeans were even in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. And so the government was like, fine, if we stop using it, or if it's abandoned or whatever, you can have it back. So in 1963, it stopped being a jail, or prison, I guess technically, and... It was declared, the island was declared surplus federal property in 1964. So a group of activists, obviously and rightfully, felt that the island qualified for reclamation by the Native mm-hmm. Americans. That sounds like it, it is like exactly how That's it was designed. Definition of it, right? Yeah. So it starts with street theater. And they're starting to raise awareness. And then it moved to a group of 40 people occupying the island and to get there was crazy. Like they had these boats lined up that didn't show up. So then they found this other guy and hired him and he took them part way. And then they swam the rest of the way and got to the island to occupy it. And in the beginning, it was a group led by Sioux activists and they were offering the federal government the same amount of money for the land that they had initially been offered, which was 47 cents per acre which amounted to $9.40 for the entire island, or $5.64 for the 12 usable acres. Why did they have to pay them anything? I mean, I don't think they should. I think it was a a slap in the face of like, yeah. do you see the ridiculousness of what you've done to us? Yeah. Um, so that initial group of 40 people were threatened with felonies, so they left. So then in 1969, the San Francisco Indian Center burned to the ground. And it was the one place that, like, everybody felt that they could come be a part of something. And so once they lost that, it kind of brought everyone together. And it spurred all of these people to further activism. So way more indigenous groups joined. And ultimately, the leaders were Mohawk, Native Alaskan, Ho-Chunk, Shoshone, and other tribes. Like, there was just this whole group of people. Altogether. So, um, so some of them, the Coast Guard removes them or blocks them, but eventually they get back on the island. And then groups, support groups would boat across like food and clean water and supplies and whatever they could, despite the Coast Guard blocking them. They still always managed to get some supplies to the people on the island. And they would write to the U.S. government saying that they wanted the land for the purpose of building a cultural center that included Native American studies, an American Indian spiritual center, an ecology center, and an American Indian museum. Which, how could you say, I don't, (laughs) anyway. um, So they start sending out radio broadcasts and even a newspaper from the island. But the government would shut off their electricity or cut off the phone lines, and it started to get more and more difficult to get fresh water to the occupiers on the island. And then in addition to all of that, the main leader, his family was all there, and one of his daughters named Yvonne fell from somewhere on the island and died. And so his whole family left. They were like, we, they said that their heart, they didn't have the heart to continue protesting. So some of the original protesters are leaving and some new occupants are coming that are addicted to drugs. And then there was this whole controversy with a woman who was spreading the word throughout the country that then rumors are spreading that she was getting a movie deal and was kind of selling them out. 
Oh. And so it's just like there's all of these leaders disagreeing on which way to go. Yeah. And there's just all of this tension within the protest. And then national support, which was once huge to have these celebrities and, you know, all these supporters. It's kind of starting to wane. So everything's just kind of dwindling. Um, finally, the government came in and forcibly removed the 15 occupants that were left. And they transferred the land to the State Department and National Parks. So even though they didn't get the land as they were supposed to, mm -hmm. because, again, it was the definition of the Treaty of Fort Laramie, they still, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people consider that occupation a success because it brought a whole bunch of different Native tribes together under one cause. And it sparked literally international awareness to the ongoing atrocities that the federal government commit against Native Americans and Native Alaskans. Yeah. Because it's not something that stopped after the Trail of Tears. It's literally ongoing. Yeah. So anyway, that is the briefest history of the occupation of Alcatraz that I could boil it down That's to. fascinating. Yeah, I it, have never heard of that. Yeah, there's so much more that happened. And it was just a roller coaster of a just over a year. So anyway... Wilma sees all this happening. She's getting involved. She's part of the boat transports, trying to get supplies to them. And that's when she was like, I need to start working for my people. I need to start doing things, not just for the poor and women and children, but specifically for Native people. Love to see it. Uh, her husband, however, was like, actually, no, you should not be doing any of this. Um, yeah. So in her words, quote, when Alcatraz occurred, I became aware of what needed to be done to let the rest of the world know that Indians had right to had rights to Alcatraz was the benchmark for her convulsion to, conversion. Good grief. Struggling over here. Struggling. Alcatraz was the benchmark for her conversion to full time activism. So despite her husband's wishes, she buys her own car become super independent and start taking her daughters to Native American events up and down the coast. Oh, you'd love to see oh, it. To see it. <sighs> That's great. Oh, I love it. Um, so Did she, she starts, throw away her husband? I, eventually, yeah. We're, we're, That's great. Yeah. She does throw away her husband. Um, okay. I have a snack from my <laughs> snack boy. Okay. Um, boop, 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 boop. Right. So she starts working, learning, like developing paralegal skills. So she starts work preparing documents and filing for grants. And in the mid 70s, she files for divorce from fucking Hector and moves her daughters to Oklahoma so that she could work for her native people in Oklahoma. She's hired as an economic stimulus coordinator using her, you know, document preparing skills and procuring grants for native peoples in Oklahoma. So then in 1979, Wilma and her best friend were in a really, really bad car accident, like horrible car accident. But the kicker is they were not in the same car. Her best friend struck her head on. Oh no. Like, That's what are chances? It's, First of all, what are the chances? Second of all, absolute nightmare absolute nightmare um so Wilma survived but her best friend didn't oh my god yeah. 
And even though she survived, she had to undergo a whole bunch of surgeries and had all these health problems for forever. It was just rough. She's also diagnosed at the same time with myasthenia gravis, which is a chronic neuromuscular disease that makes it difficult to speak, hold a pencil, brush your hair, like that kind of. Yeah. Um, like fine motor stuff. Yeah, fine motor stuff. Uh, she said, quote, I thought a lot about what I wanted to do with my life during that time. The reality of how precious life is enabled me to begin projects I couldn't have otherwise tackled. So she's like, all right, if I, you know, if I have this gift that not a lot of people have, I'm going to make it work. So she turns her attention to Bell, Oklahoma. And Bell is a little bitty village on... Cherokee reservation where residents are super poor and pretty much everybody only speaks Cherokee. So she starts obtaining grants for them and she starts developing a community self-help program where she gathered volunteers who constructed an 18 mile um, water system and they would repair damaged housing. And so she's, she's designing and supervising community projects that allowed the citizens to identify their own challenges and then work together to participate in solving them. Brilliant. That shit. Um, So this garners her national attention and she was named Ms. Magazine's woman of the year in 1987. While she's gathering volunteers in Bell, some accounts say that she met some accounts say that they have been lifelong friends or longtime friends, but she meets, Charlie Soap. Hard eyes. Do we, we hard eyes him? Okay. We hard eyes Charlie Soap. Great. Uh, he's full blood Cherokee. They get married. Um, they are together the rest of her life. Ugh. Strong hard eyes Charlie Soap. Um, so her project in Bell becomes a model for later projects and apparently was featured in a movie, but I it, I don't know which movie. It was, just like, <laughs> it was featured in a film and I was like, Great. Which one? Great. Any of them. There's one out there. Yeah. If you see it, you let me know. Um, so Our next... email is babetownpod at gmail.com. Babetownpod at gmail. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> let us know. Thanks. Thanks. If you find that movie. If you were in the movie, please let us know. Thank oh, you. my God. Please we let love us know. We love you. Holy shit. <laughs> um, so 1983, the incumbent um, Cherokee chief named Ross Swimmer was running for re-election and he needed a running mate for a deputy chief. And so even though she had recently returned to Oklahoma, he was like, you would be great at this. You should run with me. Hey girl. Hey. And a lot of people were like, she's a lady. Fuck no. And just were really hesitant. There was a whole bunch of sexism, but they won. And it made her the first female elected deputy chief of the Cherokee nation which she served for two years. And then in 1985, Swimmer got a role, I don't remember what it was, in the federal government. So she's named the tribe's principal chief, making her the first woman in history to serve as chief of the Cherokee people, which is the largest tribal nation in the U.S. You love to see it. Huge fans. Huge fan. Wow. Uh, she won two more elections in 1987 and 1991 and then chose not to run again in 1995 because her health was really rough. Um, but the 1987 election was rough. There was a ton of competition. She had her car vandalized. She had all these death threats. 
she knew that like culturally women play a huge role in the Cherokee people as leaders socially and politically. Women's councils were common. And one Cherokee legend, I'm going to mispronounce this and I apologize in advance. I'm truly trying. Um, but there's a Cherokee legend that tells the story of Begow. Maybe, maybe not. I apologize. Um, but anyway, that word is translated as war woman. And so she knew how important it was and wanted to illustrate Cherokee culture, embracing women in power. So in her autobiography, she describes the delicate balance that Cherokees believe exists in the well-ordered world between men and women and thought that it was European colonialism that disrupted that balance. And so she thought that having a female chief would be a step toward restoring the balance of the sexes in the world of the Cherokees. So anyway, she wins again. It's great. That's great. Um, she was chief for 10 years, which wow. is amazing. While she was chief, the Cherokee government built new health clinics, created a mobile eye care clinic, established ambulance services, created early education, adult education, launched job training programs, developed revenue programs, uh, including factories, retail stores, restaurants, bingo operations, and established self-governance, allowing the tribe to manage its own finances. So wow. it's just like, it's exploding and thriving. Uh, infant mortality rate is down. And I think she tripled tribal, um, not residency. What is the word that I'm looking for? Uh, membership. Mm. Um, so even, even after she leaves office, she continues activism, mainly on behalf of Native American women and children. Um, and she's constantly working to combat the misappropriation of Native heritage, which, by the way, folks, if you don't know, Please don't dress up as Native Americans for Halloween. Oh, my God. Don't please do stop, it. Please stop saying something is your spirit animal. Don't do that. It's not. And no. I know there are a hundred other harmful cultural appropriation um, examples, but those are the two that I see the most often. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know why those are harmful, Google them and do the work. Okay. Anyway, we learn. We grow. This has been a PSA. This has been a friendly PSA, which, I mean, I've done them too, but now you know. Anyway, okay. Um, also, she taught for a short time at Dartmouth College. Casual. Oh, Casual. why not? Why not? So her 1993 autobiography is called Man Killer, A Chief and Her People. And every chapter begins with a Cherokee myth or legend depicting a core um, attitude of Cherokee culture. I want to read it so badly. Yeah, wow. I'm really excited. I'm absolutely going to buy the crap out of that. Yeah. Um, she also wrote and compiled Every Day is a Good Day, Reflections by Contemporary Indigenous Women, which was published in 2004, uh, which features a foreword by leading feminist, Gloria Steinem. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 1998, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor that we can win. Um, 
But unfortunately, Wilma consistently struggled with health issues, including polycystic kidney disease, myasthenia gravis, lymphoma, breast cancer, and had two kidney transplants. Jeez. Yeah. She ultimately died of pancreatic cancer on April 6, 2010. That's so many things. So, but yeah, she passed away. She was 64 years old. And she said, quote, I want to be remembered as the person who helped us restore faith in ourselves. A hero. Wilma man killer. Yeah. Wow. Um, also, I had to cut out so much of her life because there's just so much. Yeah. So if you are at all inclined, go read up on her. It's, it's so fascinating. And I'm so excited to read her book. Um, to source my shit. <laughs> uh, Wikipedia, biography.com, womenshistory.org has a dope article by Ray Tyler. Time.com, she was one of the 100 women of the year this year, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. Adrian Keene wrote about her. And then there's an article called Women on 20s that makes the case for women who should be the face of our money moving oh forward. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. WomenOn20s.com. Look it up. Tell your friends. I am going to write that down right now, actually. Yeah, it's a great time. Women on 20s spelled out, I'm assuming? No, just 2-0-2-0-2-0-0.com. Yeah. It's a, it's a good time. Great. Can't wait. That was a great time. It's, isn't it? She's, I love her. <laughs> So good. Yeah. Wow. Good job. Thanks, ma'am. You too. Welcome back, babe. Welcome back, babe. Do you have a other babe? A welcome back, babe of the week? A welcome back what has been keeping you sane this past month or week or day or whatever? Um, well, I don't know that it counts as keeping me sane because I had to step away from it for a hot minute because it was bumming me out so much, but MFM. No. Um, have you been watching? I'll be gone in the dark on HBO. (sighs) Have you been watching it? Yes. Oh, I'm not caught up, but I, the last one that I watched was episode four and it wrecked me. So, um, I am, I have not yet watched the one from last Sunday. And I'll be gone this Sunday, so I'll have two to catch up on. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, I mentioned her. She was literally my first ever babe of the week. Um, Michelle McNamara, uh, wife of Pat Oswalt, who is a great comedian, um, who's maybe one Mother of, her, of like, Alice Oswalt. <laughs> Pat Oswald is maybe one of the most like like human comedians to me where just everything he says I'm like yeah buddy I I feel that deep in my soul I love that the show includes his stand-up bits from the time yeah there's it's so oh, good um anyway she wrote a book called I'll be gone in the dark everybody who listens to this podcast already knows this but she wrote a book called I'll be gone in the dark talking about the Golden State Killer and then died suddenly in her sleep and the book was unfinished um 
And she basically, the, the research that she did and the contacts that she made put the right people in connection with each other to where in 2017? I, I believe that's right. 2017 uh, or 2018? Yeah, it might have been, been 2018 because it was it really been, recent. Yeah, it might have been 2018. Um, they caught him and he was he was a murderer and rapist from like the 70s. And they caught him and a lot of the stuff that they ended up using to catch him, Michelle McNamara I mean, either found or was on it or yeah, she's the one that came up with the term. Like she solved that case um obviously with loads and loads of other people but it it she's the connecting factor she's, yeah has long been a personal hero of mine and they did an hbo documentary about the process of writing the book so like that's one thing that i really liked about it is they're so they're talking about all of his crimes but they're not really in detail it's just this, this crime happened here and when, and here's how Michelle connected the dots to these other ones, which is great because it's one of the more, I mean, that's, that's a true crime story that I can, I cannot binge things about that case because it is terrifies me. Prolific and horrific and it terrifies me. Um, and anyway, the documentary is beautiful. It's, it really is. It's beautifully done. Um, I don't think I will ever watch it again because it is fair destroying me, but it's great. And um, it's very cool how much of herself she recorded because mm -hmm. you're getting so much of it told through her, which is great. Anyway, if you guys are looking for a really inspiring lady who did a lot of really, really great work, go watch I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Yeah. Large trigger warnings throughout the whole thing for basically everything. Humongous trigger warnings. Huge trigger warnings. Um, Rape, violence, murder. Fear. I don't know. Death. Um, but it is a really beautiful documentary. It's great. And it highlights her so well. And it's just been really nice when, like, as of late, it's felt a lot like the bad guys keep winning. Yeah. And it's been so nice to watch, like, a lady who was, like, not this fucking guy and just, like, devoted yeah. her whole life to it. I just, it's, it's great. It's really. It's really great. It's really, really great. Um, but it is a lot. So watch it carefully and yeah. take breaks from it. Don't binge it. Yeah. I have a friend who was, like, she, I was asking her if she had watched it. And she was, like, no, I think I'm just going to wait for the whole thing to be out so I can just binge it. And I was, like, mm. don't do that. Don't do I, would that. Not do that. <laughs> I would not do that. And I could watch horror movies and crime shows all day long. And I would not binge this. Like, yeah, don't do it. It's too dark. Start to finish. It's very dark, but it is great. Yeah. So that's my, that is my babe. Michelle McNamara, always and forever. Oh yes, Michelle. Yeah. Oh, yes. Such a cool lady. Yeah. Um, I kind of like, so I have one that I just want to give a shout out to. Yeah. Good old Brene Brown. Um, I read two of her books this past month during our break. And it's amazing how learning about 
the universal struggle with vulnerability and shame and how everybody struggles with it mm-hmm. um, makes me feel more confident and willing to have vulnerability and be a person. Yeah. Um, just wanted to real quick shout out, but who I mainly want to focus on this week is um, Rebecca Nagel and oh. everybody in the crooked media sphere that had anything to do with producing the podcast, this land. Um, if you have not heard it, it's all on Spotify. Go listen to it. There is a Supreme court case that was heard last year. And in the summer, I think it was July when they were supposed to rule on it. They made a not unprecedented, but very, very few precedented choice to hear the case again this year. Wow. Uh, I think it's only happened like three or four times with like huge cases. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they heard the entire case again this year. And it was about whether or not certain land in Oklahoma belonged to Native American tribes, specifically the Cherokee tribes. Um, And the ruling finally came out a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. And the senator or the um, Supreme Court judge who wrote the opinion Mm -hmm. is a conservative Republican judge. Who was it? Gorsuch. He wrote this opinion and he delivered it to the court uh, July 9th. On the far end of the Trail of Tears was a promise. Forced to leave their ancestral lands in Georgia and Alabama, the Creek Nation received assurances that their new lands in the West would be secure forever. In exchange for ceding all their land east of the Mississippi River, the U.S. government agreed by treaty that the Creek country west of the Mississippi shall be solemnly guaranteed to the Creek Indians. Skipping down a little bit. Today, we are asked whether the land these treaties promised remains an Indian reservation for purposes of federal criminal law. Because Congress had not has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word. So good. So it it ruled in favor of the tribes. Wow. And the vast majority of land in northeastern Oklahoma was determined tribal land. And wow. it's yeah, it's that's amazing. It's huge and it's very, very cool. Also, I think I said that she was Cherokee. And now I'm thinking that she's Creek, and I apologize. Um, yes, because it was Creek Nation that was... Anyway, I apologize for mistribing Rebecca Nagel. Um, but yeah, it. if you haven't heard this land, go listen to the whole thing. It is fascinating, because the whole thing is based on a criminal court case. And these men were tried by the state of Oklahoma when they were members of the reservation or members of the um, native American nation on native American land. So the state of Oklahoma has no say Mm -hmm. over their jurisdiction. They don't have jurisdiction there. So anyway, it's been this whole thing for years now and it's really, really great that the federal government finally ruled in the favor of, Native American peoples, but that's amazing. Wow. It's really cool. Um, so yeah, Rebecca Nagel, 
everybody involved. 10 out of 10. This is really fun because our babes are repeat babes. They are repeat babes. She was one of your early ones too. She was one of my early ones, yeah. That's really fun. So props for remembering that. See, I listen when you talk. I do. I think I don't, but I do. <laughs> Every time I hang up, and I'm like, she never listens to she doesn't me. Listen to me. Ugh. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Great. Dang. If you tuned in, thanks for doing that. Because it's love been you. a hot minute, and I know we're not in your normal routine anymore. Um, so thanks, guys. And love you. Love you. Follow us on all the shit, and uh, we're at Babetown Pod on all of the shit. We are at Babetown Pod on all the shit. And give us a like, give us a review if you're feeling spicy, like me send drinking us, Coke. Send us to a friend. Send oh my god, to somebody send us who's to like, man, I'm so bummed that men are all over the world. Be like, I know what you need. You need some fresh, spicy babes. Women are there, too. They just don't get talked about. Women are there, too. <laughs> That's what we should name this podcast now. We should just... Women are there, too. Women are there, too, with Reagan and Taylor. <laughs> we talk about all these movements that people are like, look at these men doing these. And we're like, women are there, too. Women were there, too. Excuse you. I'm picturing it like a Drunk History episode where you just see the women in the background. like I, hey, I'm picturing it like Forrest Gump. <laughs> We're just in the background of all these photos, just like yeah. women being like, <laughs> yes, amazing. Yeah. All right. Have I love fun you. camping. Thanks. Happy anniversary. Thanks. I love you. Bye. Bye.